we are picking up uh, in Romans 11 and uh, back here still in this section where we talk about what it means to have the privilege of being the people of God. And, and I hope that in this week, as I've kind of alluded to at times, I hope in this week and, and, and these weeks following in these verses that you'll get a better picture here of who is the privileged people of God. I've mentioned that Israel is the privileged people of God. I've mentioned that the church now, right now, is the privileged people of God. And you might be thinking, who is it? Who is it when? When is it who? I don't know if you could say that another way. but um, And we're here in Romans 11 where we're getting the sense that becoming God's privileged people is bigger than you and it's bigger than me. It's bigger than both of us. This morning, I hope to begin to explain how both Israel and the church are God's privileged people. And I think that's where chapter 11 kind of brings these ideas together of what that means to be God's privileged people. As, As I read through a section like this and kind of begin to study it and survey it, as a whole, as a a large, um, I I try to draw out, Lord, what do you want us to focus on for harvest out of these chapters, out of this chapter? And And that's really what came out, was both for Israel and for the church, what does it mean to be God's privileged people? And... We're talking this morning about our window of opportunity that we have. Here in June of 2017, what is the window of opportunity that we have as God's privileged people? And you're saying, that doesn't make it any more clearer because I thought we'd been talking about Israel as God's privileged people. Imagine, if you will, that you have the opportunity to walk into God's central command. You have the opportunity to walk into God's planning room. And you come in with that question. Where did I come in to being a part of your privileged people? Where do I fit in? And you're looking at this wall where all of history, all of time is laid out like a poster, like a like a, uh, a graph uh, moving from one direction to the other. And, and you ask the question, Lord, where do I fit in here? Where am I? And he would say, well, <clears throat> you're, you're, you're way, way back there. You don't have eternal eyes to see it. Just how far back you are. You're way back there where I foreknew you. I foreloved you where I had planned that you would be mine. You're you're here in the Old Testament where where my people who who were called by my name had the opportunity to walk with me according to my truth and they rejected it. They chose to, to pursue me by works rather than by faith. You're here at the sacrifice of my son where he paid for everyone. He paid for everyone's sins. They were all laid on him. Your sins were laid on him. You're here as a part of my privileged people, the church. You're in all of it. 
And, and that's just how big it is, too big for us to really understand. We, we just work with what we're given here, really. And so we're going to pick up in Romans 11, verse 11, but keep in mind what was asked in verse 1, which we looked at last week. Speaking of Israel as God's privileged people, the question was asked, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And the answer was no, no way. And he starts talking about a remnant. And he explained that remnant and that remnant's relationship with those that, have, that are a part of Israel that have rejected the gospel. And he says that that remnant he describes as, as the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And, and I bring that up because our passage this morning will talk about this partial hardening that Israel is under. Okay, so, so last week's passage started with, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And this week's passage starts with, at verse 11, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? And it gets the same answer, by no means, no way. Rather, through their trespass, Salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. I read that wrong. Let me read that again. Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And then he goes into this analogy, spinning off of this idea of the root and the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will, you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into the cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree. And he closes, we close with this verse here. 
Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, this, uh, earlier this morning, we got through the first point there with its little bullets. Uh, so, when you look at this whole bulletin here, understand that's what we're going to cover for probably the next, this week and probably the next two. But we're looking this morning at our window of opportunity as God's privileged people. We have summary bookends here. For these verses, okay? It begins with verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. No way. There is no way that that is possible, he's saying. It closes up talking about a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And, and so this partial hardening, understand is partial in the sense that, as he said last, we looked at last week, it's partial in the sense that there is a remnant of God's people, Israel, who trust in Christ as their Savior. And it summarized that idea by saying, the elect obtained it. Explaining that it is by grace, that there is a remnant chosen by grace. But it says, but the rest were hardened. So there's a partial hardening in the sense that It isn't all of Israel that have been cut out of the church today. But it's also partial in the sense that there's a time limit to it. There's a point where this is going to end. This hardening of Israel and them not being looked at nationally as God's privileged people. And that, I believe, comes when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So these are big ideas talking about stretching from the Old Testament to, to, I believe, the rapture. So you can imagine why we're taking a few weeks to talk about this. Now, imagine you're driving down the interstate, okay? And the speed limit's 70 miles an hour. You're keeping with traffic here. You're going 79, something like that. Somebody going 80 gets pulled over in front of you. I mean, what do you do? Whoa, slow it down, check my speedometer. You're going 65 now, right? <laughs> I mean, that happens, right? I mean, you go under the speed limit all of a sudden. And you're thinking, that could have been me. That's part of the nature of what's being communicated in these verses, especially when we get to the talk about this olive tree. Some of the branches were broken off. and, And we, as followers of Christ, have been grafted into this relationship with God that began back with the patriarchs, began back with creation. And and so that comes out, don't be arrogant. We have that sense like driving down the road thinking that could have been me. You slow down. But taking this analogy a little bit further, you're not even driving, okay? This, this, This car is pulled over and you're walking. Okay, you're walking down the shoulder of this interstate. You don't have a right to be in the lanes. You don't have a car to drive. And this police officer is putting this uh, speeder in the back seat of his car, and he points to this Ferrari that this person's been driving, and he says, you need a car? Get in. It's yours. 
I mean, that's the sense here of Israel as a nation has been um, set aside corporately, nationally, and the church has taken on that role as God's privileged people. And again, you're seeing why this is going to take two or three weeks to explain a little bit. But, and, and really, <clears throat> it, it's, it's not a, the Ferrari kind of breaks down here because that's a two-seater. This is like a Ferrari bus, okay? And, and there's room for everybody. There's room for Jews that come to Christ as their Savior, as their Messiah on board of the church. There's room for Gentiles that come to Christ as their Savior. This, this Ferrari bus of God's privileged people today is trucking down the road now as God's privileged people. That, that's the picture in your mind, and kind of like a dream. It kind of keeps morphing into something else, I guess, but... We'll see soon that verse 11 is telling us that Israel is not disqualified from being in relationship with God. And looking at verse 25, it helps us to see where all this talk of jealousy and pruning and grafting is going. The present issue with Israel and the Gentiles of the church is that there's a partial hardening until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And this is key for the Roman church. I mean, think back here. This church originally it was made up of Jews and Gentiles. The Jewish population of the church was larger than the Gentile population of the church because they were quicker to respond to the gospel and such. But the emperor had cast out all of the Jews from Rome, including the Jewish probably leaders of the church in Rome. And now when this letter comes to them, they have come back together. The Jewish believers are, are now the old guard. They're now the ones in leadership. They're now the ones that that are kind of running the place. The Jewish believers come back into this, and this is a major uh, theme of the book of Romans, and this is part of why Paul is helping them to understand what is God's privileged people today, and how does that relate to Israel, as well as answering that question that came up at the the beginning of chapter 9. Does God's promises fail? I mean, if if the Jews are God's privileged people, main idea I want to get you get across to you this morning, and, it, and, it, and it's made up of the three points of these verses. Israel's purposeful, reversible stumble should humble us as followers of Christ and cause us to live with anticipation. Israel's reversible, purposeful stumble should humble us as followers of Christ and cause us to live with anticipation. That's where we're going in our weeks in these verses. We're looking this morning at Israel's purposeful, reversible stumble. And he asked that question there. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fail? By no means. I like how the NIV describes this question. Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? So are they eliminated? Is Israel as a nation now eliminated from being God's people? Now this Romans 11, you might not understand this necessarily where this fits into um, church beliefs or understandings or something, but this is kind of a major like separation between a lot of churches. And the idea is what's called replacement theology. 
and that is the theology that, the, that Israel has been completely replaced by the church and that there's no place for them at, in the end times. There's no place for them, um, and, and we're kind of it. You're going to find that, that from uh, my message, you probably picked this up right out of the gate in Romans 9. I don't hold to that view. I don't believe that is a biblical view of, the, of Israel, that they have been replaced completely by the church. Um, so that's a side note here. But he asks the question, did they stumble? The other terms that will be used in these verses, it'll talk about their trespass, their failure, their leading, this, it leading to their being rejected by God in verse 15. And we'll see in verse 23 that it was due to their unbelief that they are figuratively broken off from that olive tree of being God's privileged people. Those that did not trust in Christ as their Messiah, their unbelief experienced being broken off of God's privileged people because of that. And in Romans 9.32, we were told that it's because of pursuing righteousness, the righteousness that is required to be in a relationship with God. They pursued that righteousness by works rather than by faith. And it concludes saying they stumbled over the stumbling stone, which the New Testament tells us is Jesus, their Messiah, their cornerstone. They stumbled over it. And so the question being asked here is, So being that God hasn't rejected Israel, he hasn't rejected them completely. Paul says, he hasn't rejected me. There's still a remnant. Being that he hasn't rejected Israel for salvation, is Israel ineligible to be God's privileged people again due to their stumbling over Jesus and refusing to accept him as their Messiah? Is their hardness to the gospel irreversible? Answer, their stumbling is not just reversible, it's purposeful. And whether you know it or not, every one of us in here this morning should be praising God for the purposeful nature of Israel's stumble over Jesus, the stumbling stone. Because it meant salvation coming to us, being available to us. So there's three principles that get communicated twice in the verses that we're looking at specifically here this morning. And and they get communicated first in a general way in verses 11 and 12, and then they'll get communicated again in a way that, that speaks from the Apostle Paul's personal perspective as the Apostle to the Gentiles. And these three principles are in your bulletin there, and, it, and they fall under this idea that Israel's fall is both reversible and purposeful. And these principles are, one, that na- Israel's national failure allowed for salvation to be available to us Gentiles. And second, our being saved will make Israel envious and cause openness to the gospel. And third, Israel's return to being God's privileged people will mean even greater blessing to us, the church, as his privileged people. Now, I'm correcting my own statement there. 
mean even greater blessing not to us Gentiles. It will mean even greater blessing to us, the church, because the church is made up of Jew and Gentile together who have trusted Christ as their Savior. So what we're doing here to kind of clarify in your notes there is, is in these verses, we're kind of walking through these principles twice. Walking through them in verses 11 and 12 and then walking through them in verses 13 through 15. Okay? Um, so you see where he says, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? See, Israel's national failure allowed for salvation to be made available to us Gentiles. And that's alluded to in this idea that their trespass, they're stumbling over the, stumble, the, the stumbling stone of Jesus. It led to salvation being made available to us as Gentiles. And by salvation there, he's meaning that anyone then can recognize that all of the sins of the world, and especially my sins, have been laid on Christ. It's like I, I got an opportunity to speak with a woman at McDonald's this week. And, um, you know, just started by, you know, see her there all the time. She sees me there all the time. So I got to introduce myself. And I said, I like to ask people, is there anything I can pray for you about? And she just kind of said, well, you know, there's just stuff from my past that's just wearing me down. I mean, this woman's pushing 80 or so, so if you think that stuff is just going to go away, it doesn't. And so he j- just asked her, can I pray for you now? She's like, sure, absolutely. So we sat down and we prayed, and, and that led into being able to share, you know, the beauty of what Christ did for us on the cross is that everything that I have done, all of my sins have been laid on Jesus. And he paid for them all. But also the beauty is that everything that's been done to me, everything that someone else has done to me, was also laid on Jesus. And he paid for it all. To believe that, to receive that, to receive the fact that that God can be called our Father because we're told to as many as receive him, Jesus, and all that he's done, to them he's given the right to be called children of God. That's what he means that salvation has come to the Gentiles. And it keeps going. That second principle there. Our being saved will make Israel envious and cause openness to the gospel. He says just in these general verses, Salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Their trespass means riches for the world. Their rejection of Jesus will mean salvation to the Gentiles, riches for the world. This is what Jesus is talking about with Nicodemus when he says to him, explaining what he's talking about by saying, you see, Nicodemus, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. He's, a, he's pointing to the fact just as when cursing the fig tree representing Israel that was bearing no fruit, pointing to the fact that his payment is going to be available to the world, to whoever. And the only, the way that we get into that is he's telling Nicodemus is to be born again. In other words, not, not being born a Jew, it's being born again. So, so moving forward in these principles, we see also that Israel's return to being God's privileged people will mean even greater blessing to us, the church, as his privileged people. So again, in these general statements, he says, now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, which we've covered that, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So this full future inclusion of Israel is better than salvation being offered to you. Is better for us than salvation being offered to us. And we'll, we'll touch more on this um, as we move through these in Paul's personal experience. So verse 13 begins that personal experience of Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles in these same principles, okay? I know this is kind of, kind of confusing. So if you're taking notes here, just bump back up to that first bullet point. Israel's national failure allowed for salvation to be made available to us Gentiles. Paul says in verses 13 through 15, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if rejection for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? See, Paul points out in his experience, in his perspective, in his ministry, how it plays into it. He knows that the Jewish rejection has meant the availability of reconciliation with God to the whole world. Just he was talking about generally before their national failure has allowed the offer of salvation to come to us Gentiles because of their stumbling over the stumbling stone. The gospel has been made available to anyone, no matter their ethnicity or background, no matter if they're of the Gumus people of Ethiopia or Jewish people, no matter if they are lily-white choir boys grown up been in church since the Sunday after they were born, or a prostitute, or a stripper. No matter their ethnicity or their background, salvation has been made available to the world. And that came through the rejection of Christ by the Jewish people. We're told here that it was a part of the Jews' rejection of Jesus as their Messiah. And we see this during Paul's missionary journeys. We, we learned, he mentioned in Romans 1, the fact that, that the gospel's been made available to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Uh, in other words, a term for Gentiles 
And this was his practice as he spread the gospel of Christ in the, in the Mediterranean area. You can read in Acts 13, starting in verse 46, that Paul goes to the synagogue They're here in the area of Pisidian Antioch. And it says, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly to the Jews, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Now, this isn't the point when Paul decided that he was going to go to the Gentiles with all of his ministry. He did this in each area that he went to. He'd already been told by Christ through Ananias that he had been saved in order to be God's apostle to the nations. We see it also in Acts 18, and this is an awesome passage that describes the spreading of this new privileged people of God made up of both Jew and Gentile under the direction of Jesus himself. Turn there, Acts 18, verses 5 through 10. So here's the practice. Come, they're coming into, I went to Acts 5, verse 18. Acts 18. They're coming into Corinth to bring the gospel there. Starting in verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ, their Messiah, was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out the garment, his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. He had taken the gospel to them. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. What a, what a picture here of like, I'll, I'll take my business next door. And this worshiper of God, it's possible this was a, a man who, a Gentile, who was, was seeking to worship God at the synagogue as a kind of a proselyte to Judaism. And then here we have this picture of Jesus and how he is orchestrating the building of his privileged people, the church, made up of both Jew and Gentile. Back at verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, so an upstanding Jew, believed in the Lord together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Jesus, the orchestrator of all this, shows up to Jesus, uh, shows up to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. I get chills at those verses. I mean, do you recognize that you are sitting at the epicenter of what Jesus is doing in the world? And he hasn't been doing this but for about 2,000 years, which is a blip on the radar of history and especially of eternity. 
This is what Jesus is doing. Making up his privileged people of Jew and Gentile. What I want you to see in these weeks, it's until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. This is a, these are precious moments that we have in history and in eternity. So, I also want you to see here the two sides of the bridge of salvation that we've seen in Romans 8 and 9 and 10. Those sides that we, we look at, remember that bridge that, that has is the two sides are set on solid land and the, somewhere in the span of the bridge it passes through a fog bank and you can't exactly see where it meets up. And we've talked about how one of the sides of that bridge talking of salvation is God's sovereignty. Jesus saying, I have many in this city who are mine. And the other side of that bridge of man's responsibility, of Paul looking at these Jews and saying, it's on your own heads. Since you have counted yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Where those two meet is in that fog bank. And we don't exactly understand or see it because we're not told it. But I want you to also see where Paul lives. Okay? We see this in this principle. Again, our being saved will make Israel envious and cause openness to the gospel. He says... As an apostle to the Gentiles, as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. And he he lets them in on a little secret here. In order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. In all of his talk of God's sovereignty, in all of his talk of the foreknowledge and predestination and calling of God, which side of that bridge does the apostle Paul live on? He lives on the side of man's responsibility. He works and he speaks and he acts in order to possibly save some. And that's where we live. That's where we live. I'll never, I'll always appreciate the compliment I received from somebody when um, it was, it was, it was a conversation being had in town somewhere about where someone says, well, J.D., he really preaches a lot on the sovereignty of God is basically the gist of the conversation. And the person thought that this was a bad thing. And they said, I don't see how that's possible because he shares the gospel so much. <laughs> we live on the side of man's responsibility, calling people to respond And maybe even as Paul tells them in Acts 18, your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent. That's where we live. So this idea here that we're kind of being used. I'm okay with that. Because I get Christ. Okay? Um, Let me do this poll here. Let's see if you're, you're... more mature Christians than the first service. Uh, how many of you guys, how many of you uh, have seen It's a Wonderful Life? Okay, a little bit better. You're, you're, you're a little better. Um, I need to know kind of how much I need to explain this scene, all right? I, I, 
I, I say it's one of my favorite scenes. I love every scene in It's a Wonderful Life. Um, but, but, you know, George Bailey and Mary are, are uh, um, kind of reunioned a little bit after years apart. Mary's always had eyes for George. George's mom tells him that. He's kind of like, you know, he's kind of disappointed with where his life is going and stuff. He doesn't want to settle down. He doesn't want a, a, a girlfriend right now. doesn't want to get married and stuff like that. But he, he goes and visits her at her house. And she's kind of trying to see if there's any interest in her. And he's kind of trying, she's kind of trying to, to, you know, uh, um, see if the same spark is there between them that there used to be. And he's just not interested. And he's just like, I'm, 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 you know, I should, I shouldn't be here anyways. I don't know why I came. I'm just going to leave. And as he comes back in to get his hat, Sam Wainwright, the girl that Mary, the guy that Mary's seeing, Gives a call, you know, hee-haw, Sam. And she picks up the phone, and George comes back in, and she sees him come back in, and she goes, Oh, hee-haw, Sam, how are you? And George, on his way out the door, he kind of turns, and he's like, I'm not so sure I like this. Mary with Sam Wainwright? What? And she's like, oh, yes, oh, Sam, it's so good to talk to you. And she kind of draws him back in by saying, oh, Sam, George is here. Don't you want to, you know, do you want to say something? Okay, she draws him back in there. But understand, Israel is George Bailey, and we're Sam Wainwright. And, and what Paul alludes to and what God is using us for is drawing Israel out of jealousy back to himself he's just using us bit parts the gentiles in this scheme that they would come back into the fold of being his privileged people except for those of us gentiles who trust in christ as our savior we still get christ right For the Jews who trust in the gospel, also they still get Christ. We see also that Israel's return to being God's privileged people will mean even greater blessing to us, the church, as his privileged people. We see this in Paul's experience too as he relays. For if their rejection, verse 15, means the reconciliation of the world, What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And we're going to unpack this more next week. But but as I shared with you, I don't believe that Scripture teaches that Israel has been set aside completely and replaced by the church. And and Zechariah 12 foretells a time when much of Israel will come to their senses. And this is is a beautiful uh, prophecy way back in the Old Testament times. Zechariah 12.10, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas of mercy. So God's going to pour out on them the pleas of mercy that that they are going to use to call out to him with. So that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. As one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. 
So what verse 12 said in this general description, that their failure will mean riches for the Gentiles, and asks the question, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Verse 15 says, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? That's talking in perspective of our experience as God's privileged people, the church. And this is a little vague. It's, it's eschatology. There's a, uh, there's a lot of different interpretations of what's said here. It's, it's vague terms, just to let you know here. But where I lean with this, what I believe is that verse 25, when it says, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, that a partial hardening has come upon the nation of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. I believe that that's speaking about the worshipers that God intends from every tongue and every tribe and every nation that will inhabit his kingdom forever. When that fullness of the Gentiles comes in, He's going to take us as the church off the scene in the rapture. And this is the life from the dead. This is the, uh, if, if their failure means riches of salvation for us, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Their full inclusion, their being his people again, means even better than the riches that we get of salvation. It means us being able to be in his presence. That's what them being his people again means for us. And we might get into Daniel 9, where it talks about the 70 weeks of Daniel, that there is one week remaining for God to work with his people, Israel, as his people. And that would be the week of the tribulation time after the rapture. So my position here is that it will mean that the church will finally be in God's presence. And God will deal with Israel as his privileged people again. At that, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And I was reading, listening yesterday to a song by Jeremy Camp. Where he describes that moment for us. And you can understand why it's even better than God's riches today for us in salvation. I will be dancing free, unashamed before my king, when I am finally home. Won't need no bed to sleep. I'll have too much to see, just staring at your throne. Every tribe and every nation shouting out your name. I will be forever running free, moving to heaven's, all of heaven's melodies, colors that I've never seen, bigger than my wildest dreams, will be together when we're finally home. And it won't matter to us that the church time is done. Because we'll be with him. Hear the hopeful tone of the words of Romans here. God's sovereign work in the lives of men, in the lives of nations. This is not fatalistic. This is intended to lead us to gratitude. Intended to lead us to realize the grace that we have 
for ourselves. The grace that God has shown on us. This is intended to bring us to the place where we say at the end of Romans 11, Oh, the depths and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who gives? Who, are, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And he can understand why Romans 11 is intended to bring us to Romans 12. Where based on God's mercy, based on his grace that he's shown us, based on the blessings that he's brought to us as his privileged people, says, I urge you to present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. Because that's your spiritual service of worship. Because you've been given everything as his privileged people. You sit at a most privileged moment in all of history. I mean, think about this. This time now was when the window was open for you to know Christ as your Savior. And think about the others that have this opportunity during this window to know Christ as their Savior. It will not be open forever. It will not. Let's close in prayer. Lord, you are so gracious. We are so privileged. Lord, there are so many that this day is not special to them. It's not set apart from another day to worship you because people see no reason. And they see no reason because they don't know you. Lord, there's, there's plenty that this day is set aside, but it's not special because even though people are sitting in pews today, they don't know you. That even like what happened to your privileged people, Israel, they're pursuing you as if it's based on works rather than by faith. Thank you so much for doing all that needed to be done. Thank you so much for offering a relationship with you through the work of your Son, Father. I pray, Lord God, that you give us a sense of urgency and expectation because this fullness of the Gentiles will come in. And this time will close. Father, let us keep our eyes on you throughout that. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.